welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey everybody, welcome back. It's Lori Forner here. I have a great episode for you today. Sandy Hilton is back. If you guys don't know who she is, um, you'll have to go back on the podcast and listen to the last, oh, I don't know, she's probably got four or five podcasts that we've done with her in the past, uh, but she's got her own podcast called Pain, Science and Sensibility. So once again, if you haven't listened to it, go into the podcast search engine. It's a brilliant podcast she does with Corey Blickenstaff, and they take research papers and pull them apart and look at the good and the bad, but then also apply how the information can be used in a practical situation as physiotherapists. And it's not just, um, actually, they don't do a heaps of pelvic health stuff. They do, Sandy manages to convince Corey to do some. So any field of physiotherapy, but really any health profession can have a listen to those podcasts. But I thought she would be a perfect person to come on and discuss little things and big things about evidence and research. So where do we find it? You know, when we do find it, how do we access um, the full articles? How do we read it? What's good research? What is bad research? So it was really lovely to discuss these little questions with her. Um, she's, I'll put the link in the show notes, but she's just hosted doctors Neil O'Connell and Steve Camper. And they've got an excellent online course that we talk about in the podcast that anyone can pay to have access to that will go into a lot of what we talk about today, but actually in really specific detail. Um, but her main kind of points with respect to evidence were that we have to read the whole paper. We cannot get away with just reading the title because often it's misleading um, or just reading the abstract. We really need to read all of it. So I hope you guys find this um, as exciting as I did. Sandy, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. So today I really wanted to talk about anything and everything to do with research and evidence and how we find it and how we rate it. And because you have this amazing podcast called Pain, Science and Sensibility, where you go through, you and Corey Blickenstaff go through mm -hmm. different research articles and kind of pick them apart, I thought what better person to help everyone who's listening as well as myself um, work out the ins and outs of research and you guys just had a you just ran a course on evidence and research so I'm going to get you to talk about that too so thanks so much for coming back I'm so glad you let me it's fun I love I love figuring out the timing so we can talk to each other from other sides of the planet I know it's uh nighttime I'm for you halfway across the world yeah, yeah. It's nighttime for you, so you're on your wine and I'm on my 10th coffee, probably. <laughs> By the way That's it's been fair. going so far, yes. That's fair. Yeah, we did. We um, 
so Pain, Science, and Sensibility is available on iTunes. Corey Blickenstaff and I do it as part of the um, uh, PT Inquest and PT Podcast Network uh, that Eric Mira and J.W. Matheson run, and it's fantastic. Corey is is brilliant and makes my head go in places that, that I had never intended it to go of, as far as looking into the hows and whys of research. Um, I really look at it to try and inform my practice in a way that, that makes it more elegant and easier for my patients, which I think is kind of the whole point of evidence-based practice is we're trying to get it so that we are getting our patients better faster if we can define better and faster and, and it gets frustrating, but fun when you look at defining the words and, and trying to pull that all apart. I think, um, I might be a little odd in that I find all of that, uh, positive experience. I know that some therapists and health practitioners look at the evidence, like it's a thing that says, this is all nihilistic and nothing works. And you might as well just give up and sell shoes, but I see it a completely different way where it, it really is exciting and, um, and can make things more easy for us. Uh, and I'm exceptionally lazy. So I'm really looking for how to be the, the, put the least amount of effort into helping get the most benefit. That's my ideal. Well, technically as physiotherapists or physical therapists, evidence is meant to be our base to how we assess and treat and decide what we're going to do. But I, I mean, in our degree in, in Australia, we a lot of the information that we learned was based on evidence and there's always new thing, new ideas and new um, things that people are testing within the research. But somehow, once you graduate, it's like, as a new grad, you've got so much in your head to put together that there seems, or at least it was for me, that all of a sudden there's a big time period where you stop reading the research or knowing what's happening. And you, I mean, we, we learned on, we learned a little bit on how to read research, but a very teeny tiny amount. And then you graduate and you start working and you remember all the research you learned in your, your courses, but then I don't know, it just kind of falls off. Or for me, it fell off. And I totally forgot about research for a long period of time. Well, there was, um, yes, it's, you get busy, I think. You know, you get busy with the person in front of you, and um, and and there is a huge gap, unfortunately, between the the clinical scientists and the clinicians, and we really desperately need to close that and get clinicians and clinical scientists talking to each other uh, at a much more intimate and immediate level. Because um, seventeen or twenty years, depending on who you read, before between when evidence comes out and it gets applied into practice is way too long, especially now where we have immediate access to the literature. Uh, but that means we have to understand it. And uh, uh, we just had, I, we just had a phenomenal three days at the clinic in Chicago at entropy physiotherapy and wellness. Um, we had Neil O'Connell from um, England and Steve Camper from Australia uh, in the clinic in person doing a three-day course on how to understand and apply the evidence around chronic low back pain, 
which for pelvic health therapists matters because pelvises live in the body and the nerves come off the low back. And so it, it really matters for, for my patients, but, but also there's some really good evidence on, uh, on what we might could be doing and more importantly, maybe what we need to stop doing. So the, the concept of how to know when to de-adopt those things that were really comfortable for us and we put a lot of money into and spent a lot of hours in continuing ed and, and we should probably stop. Um, that's hard, but there's good evidence to learn when, when to do that. And it was a really fun three days of going through how to, um, how to most critically appraise the literature. And when I was in school and certainly after it came out, I was like, okay, you have to read the evidence. You got to stay up and read your journals and, and just believe it because it's published. So it must be good. Um, I think that we we can all pretty much say just because it's online doesn't mean it's true, <laughs> no matter where you are. Um, and and that's true for the literature too. Just because it's published doesn't mean it actually uh, is good. And and we need to, as clinicians, know how to critically appraise it and say, you know what, they asked a question that wasn't really well defined, and they used some methods of gathering data that don't answer the question that they asked. And their conclusion is not supported by their data. And unfortunately, that probably happens more often than not. But also how to pick out the really good studies and say, this is a good question. And they, they did a good job. And it's not perfect, but we can get some stuff out of it. So it's, it goes both ways. And that course is available online, is it not? It is. We recorded it. And it is available for as long as the internet exists. Oh, that is uh, so good. So I'll put the link up in the show notes so that people can be directed. And is it still, since it's been recorded, you can either do one day, two days, or all three days? Yes. And we have a Facebook page. Um, but but really, honestly, and not just because I own the practice that recorded it, it, really the three days goes together really beautifully. Um, and And I know I will be going back to look at some of the things about how to look at um, at the data in a paper to know what the effect size is because that matters more than the p-value. You know, it's like, oh, it's statistically significant, but that doesn't mean it's clinically applicable or clinically significant. Which we will go through soon. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by Pelvic Floor Exercise. Pelvic Floor Exercise is Australia's trusted online pelvic floor store bringing together the very best pelvic floor rehabilitation products available on the market to make choosing and buying easy and discreet. Backed by the clinical knowledge and medical buying experience of the owners, husband and wife team, Fiona and Craig Rogers, you are assured of quality and excellent customer service. Secondary to product sales, the website has an ever-growing resource section for both customers and health professionals, as well as a strong social media presence, fulfilling Fiona's extreme passion for educating and helping men and women with pelvic health issues. So check out www.pelvicfloorexercise.com.au. So if we start to think about kind of research and evidence and we take it step by step to teach people in case they have forgotten because it's been a long time or again at least I mean in the in the fitness professional world 
I I don't know within the courses that they take do they do they learn about evidence based practice or do you know? It could be for exercise physiology and some some things that we know about. Um, yes, yes, they should be for the exercise physiology piece and and what might be the the outcomes for particular exercise programs. The the evidence is not awesome for like it's a small effect for exercise versus not, but it's better than not. And it's got good self-efficacy. So we should, um, but there's nothing that says this is the Holy grail of treatment for anything. Okay. Well, Uh, if someone's like, okay, right. I need to read the research. So where do they go to start to find research? Um, two places I would recommend first PubMed for sure but you need the actual paper. You cannot read the abstracts and the title and say that you understand what it said because those things are not uh, often accurate. <laughs> they're, they're, the titles are picked to be alluring and the abstracts are written so that you want to read the paper. But you must read the methods and you must read the results uh, to be able to know whether their conclusion matches what they found. So sometimes people not lie in an abstract, but they can change the words around so that it sounds in their favor. Very generous wording. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some things are just out, outright wrong. It's the exceptionally creative wording sometimes where, where they'll say that, there is a, you know, like there was a recent yoga study that said that, you know, yoga for back pain has, is, is really helpful. If you look at the study, the effect size is small. Um, so sure you should move. Um, but that doesn't, it doesn't, that, that's not as sexy of a heading of movement will help you if you hurt is not as exciting as yoga is effective for reducing back pain or eliminating back pain. Um, one is a slightly overstated claim and the other is much more realistic. So if we put in like any kind of, so generally in the search bar, you just put in, again, if you're looking at yoga and back pain, you can put yoga and back pain in quotation marks. Um, And we don't have to go, we won't go through the like logistics of how to actually do a proper search um, and how to, you know, not find, find the articles you want and not the ones that you don't want. Um, but some, what's that? <laughs> how not to cherry pick? Yes, um, how not to cherry pick. Um, but if you find a paper and you you like the title, you read the abstract, you get to the introduction. Or, uh, so, wait, wait. If you find a paper, you like the title, you read the abstract, do you have access? Oh, yes, that first. So what do you do if you – because I have – now that I'm back at uni, oh, I'm in love. I'm in heaven. <laughs> I have so many rabbit holes I can fall down. I find a research paper and I'm like, oh, my God, I've got the whole access to this. And well, what about this one and this one? And look at all these ones I can have too. But, but beforehand – but, but those of us in the clinic don't have that. Um, but – <laughs> but what we have are friends at uni <laughs> um, and um, or or there's a site that I won't name because my father was a publisher and and it's not quite legal. But I know but I don't know are, if I can put that in the show notes yet. There are ways to um, to find uh, information. One of my favorites is Twitter. I just ask 
anyone have access to this? And then you end up with six copies in your email, which is fantastic. Um, but you can also write to the corresponding author of the paper and the corresponding author has the rights to send the PDF. And you know, that's how we met really was your puzzle of pelvic pain and I asked for it and you gave it to me and I'm like, oh my God, this amazing woman wrote this article and she just gave it to me to read. (laughs) Yeah, that's what you get to do when you're the corresponding author. It's fantastic. Um, You can also put a lot of things on your own personal website after a certain amount of time. Um, But but there are ways to get information. It's one of the worst things. If we we say we want to be an evidence-based practice, but that the general physical therapist, physiotherapist doesn't have access to the full paper is absolutely ridiculous. And that's Um, where I wonder that timeline of me after graduating and not reading the research. Part of that was probably because I had no access and I didn't have any friends with access. And it wasn't until I started realizing that, ooh, I can get this paper from a friend that I probably started reading more. Right. And then we end up reading the things we can read, which are not necessarily good. And you start just going, well, it was published, so it must be okay. And our discrimination decreases, or at least mine did. Um, I I found out how, how far that had come when I was standing at one of the International Association for the Study of Pain meetings at a poster with Sarah Haig, my business partner, and and we were standing there at that poster trying to make sense of it. And Neil O'Connell came up and he's like, well, this is, you know, this and this and this. And they can't, that claim isn't substantiated by the test that they ran. And this study isn't the right kind to answer the question they were asking. So, of course, it doesn't make sense. And he did that in about two seconds or probably a minute. And Sarah and I both looked at him and we're like, so we need a review because I'm still looking at this, trying to figure it out. Uh, I had just forgotten. I stopped, I stopped using the information. So it sort of faded away. Um, it's really cool to be able to look at a paper and go, did you ask a clear question? And if you have to work really hard to figure out whether they asked a clear question, they didn't. Um, and, and what Neil said in the class is, at that point, you can stop reading. If you can't figure out what question they're, they're trying to ask, just don't bother. And, and that concept never really occurred to me as a consumer of evidence. I thought, I have to struggle my way through this. And it's like, you know, actually, I don't. It's like trying to listen to music that's just bad. <laughs> you don't have to. So they need a good, a really good, clear question. But then... Do an you answer to the question. And an answer to the question. But like you yeah. said, they're the way they get to that answer to the question can also be played around incorrectly yes. with. Yes. And that like, comes down uh, to stats, doesn't it? Well, even, or even just the, the way you collect your data. So, so, if, so if my question uh, – and, and asking an answerable question is hard. Um, we did that as part of the weekend. Uh, one of the workshops in the weekend was – to come up with a question we would want to ask and design a study that would be justifiably robust in order to answer it. That's really harder than it sounds. Um, the, so if, if you were, for example, to, to want to know um, what, an, what the norms are around women nearing menopause for prolapse, 
there are some study types that would answer that question and some study types that would not. Like you're doing a retrospective review of charts is probably not the way to answer that question. You would want some cohort study of the people in the region that you were looking at to try and make it representative representative of your population. Um, so that limits the type of study you could use to answer the question. Um, but there are people who, who are like, I want to know this. So they'll get whatever data they have and try and find the information in it. And that, that right there may not be the best way to go about it. Um, it's which, is sort of, which is sort of how they collected the information on weight limit restrictions and the risk of heavy lifting in prolapse was like a retrospective um, collection of nurses who happened to be lifting heavy patients. Does that make any sense? Right. And so you can find out an incidence of in this population, how many people had problems, but that doesn't really answer the question. It answers mm. the question in this population, how many people had problems. So if you, you want, you, ha you have to do it better than that. You can't just be a, a convenience data. <laughs> like I have this data. Let me see what I can learn from it. Isn't actually the way to go about it, but that's how many things are done. So there is, tons of evidence out there not all of it is good so you have mm -hmm. to read the method section is what you're also saying you have you have to read and find out what the question is so first there must be a question a clear question that the study is looking at that needs to be an answerable question so an example of a, an unanswerable question would be me saying um, what's the best way for me to treat pelvic pain that is that's an unanswerable question. There's too much that needs to be defined. Um, there, there are too many, uh, too many vagrances to that question to have it be actually answerable. So you'd have to drill it down to something that actually was. Um, it's part of why science and research is so hard and takes so long. So as a clinician, I want to know right now what to do, but that's not how it works. Um, it, and that that's where it's really important that the clinicians talk to the scientists and the scientists talk to the clinicians so that we can all understand each other a little bit better um, because we have questions and they have answers um, and it's good that we're on the same page. Um, so there was a great quote from the, from the weekend that is attributed to Philip Dick, but I'm going to give credit to Neil O'Connell because it was his lecture Reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. And that's important for us in clinical work because sometimes when we start looking at the evidence, we think nothing works and all of this. But, but if we look at the science and we look at the evidence, those things that persist through the doubt and through the testing is the stuff we can probably depend on a little more. And that's why I think all of the, the, the evidence that we're seeing around back pain and hopefully soon around pelvic pain that, that says we have a little bit of effect here is I think really positive because it means by golly, after putting this through the ringer and really trying hard to disprove something, we have a little bit of effect here. That's fantastic news. And it appears to be that um, interdisciplinary work 
aimed to do the kind of thing that a person enjoys doing has the most chance of helping them get better. Uh, I, that's, I can't ask for better news than that because people are most likely to do the things they enjoy doing. And it's very convenient that that also happens to be the thing that's probably going to be most likely to help them. Um, so I think I have evidence-based hope. Um, even though I still am applying uh, loosely the things in the clinic that have been done in other body parts because we don't have a lot in pelvic pain yet. Yeah. So with if we if we go back to the method section, does it matter how many subject numbers there are within it? Because especially in the, the pelvic health world, um, I'm learning quickly in my mind for the study that I want to do. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to have hundreds of people come and do my study because we have so many small numbers within all of our research papers. There's five or there's 18. So we need a whole bunch. And I was brought down to earth very quickly that A, I would never finish my PhD in time if I had as many numbers as I wanted. And B, it it just wouldn't be possible to actually do what we need to do with that many numbers. So I thought we needed to have big numbers. So how much does our sample size matter? The, the sample size matters in that the larger the number in your study, the more you can be sure that the effects you see are true uh, instead of like and true in that it's more representative of reality um, because it, it washes out the the bias you might have in your sample in that you, you might have just randomly gotten – people that aren't representative of normal. So the, the more highly powered your study is, the more people are in it, the more likely it is representative of truth. Um, and that gives you that like we talked uh, a little bit before we started recording about confidence intervals in that how confident of you are you that the result you see falls within a reasonable period. You want those the confidence interval, it's listed in the paper as the abbreviation CI, and it has two different numbers. And those numbers are the tail ends of how wide apart the possibility is. Uh, you want them really narrow. <laughs> it's like you don't want them big. The larger those, the further apart those numbers are, the more random chance there is in what you're finding. Um, so you want them small and contained around a thing and that is more likely to happen the more numbers you have in your study. It doesn't mean that a small study doesn't give good information. It just means it doesn't have massive effect. And that's where uh, systematic reviews come in handy because you can do uh, a, a sequence of small studies and then clump them all together and do a systematic review like the Cochrane reviews do and and have a better idea of what what might be true. Because um, they have specific yeah. rules and guidelines that they follow in order to, as in first they are looking at all the research papers within that field and not being biased or cherry picking, but then they've got their guidelines that they follow to say, no, this one was crap. This one we're not going to look at. These are the best papers within this subject area. And then they review them all. And they pool the data, and then they they come up with a composite score. Essentially, that's not the right word, but um, uh, and it and it gives you an idea of of where we are. 
Uh, and those are constantly being redone. So the Cochrane reviews are probably the best we have on the planet. Um, Pedro there in Australia is another great resource um, free. Um, you're not, you don't always have access to the full paper, but you get access to the scoring and Pedro does a score uh, based on the, the bias and the quality of the paper. Um, so would the abstracts from Pedro and systematic reviews be okay just to read if you don't have access to the whole paper? Better than Google or Google <laughs> Scholar <laughs> or your friend's blog post or my podcast. But yeah, um, ideally, really seriously, you need to read the whole paper. You need to do a critical but kind, objective uh, review of it. What you we really cannot do is just read the title and say, oh, my God, this, this, this supports my belief. I must be right. That's, that's, not, that's not cool. Um, and, and only have, reading the or, articles that confirm what you want to hear. Exactly. So I was going to say, you can't only read the things you like. <laughs> like there was one that came out recently on uh, – because I work with in pelvic pain, I work a lot with uh, sensory integration and and awareness of, of what hurts and what doesn't in the body. Uh, and someone just did a study trying to get a normative study on the pelvic nerves. And I saw that and I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to read this very carefully because I want it to be a very strong, very solid study that's like terribly robust that, that supports what I believe. <laughs> so I'm waiting for a day when I'm feeling... Uh, a little cynical so that I read it with, with a, with an objective eye and because I want very badly for that study to be strong and positive because it supports my bias just by the title. You gotta, you have to know that about yourself and, and be as objective as you can. So if you're trying to be objective, is there anything else in the method section that you kind of go, Ooh, you know, like we think of the sample size, anything else we should go, Hmm. The, the question has to be clear. The sample size should be big, but if it's not, they need to talk about it. What's big? The study design is important. Uh, over a thousand people. Most aren't. I'm like, yeah. most of the pelvic ones are 18, 24, maybe five. The smaller the study, the less likely it is representative. But it's all we have. Well, then we can't make large claims. So we get to acknowledge that and say, this is what we have. We can't make large claims. Okay. Um, we can't say we know this because we don't know this. We, we might think it. It makes sense. It's probably why I rely more on the, the research out on uh, CRPS and low back pain than I do on specific pelvic pain because the pelvic pain studies are so small and so highly biased. Um, many of them are based on treatment techniques by people who do the treatment techniques, and that's an automatic be careful. What because else makes you go? That's a biased paper. If someone, if the, if the, if the introduction is written in a way that that reads like someone knows what they do works and they're doing the study to prove it, hmm. that better have really strong data because that's already biased from the beginning. It's just, the question should be set up to try and disprove the theory, not not prove it. Um, but but looking at why did they choose a particular design? Is that the best design? Um, and then looking at how they recruited their sample, how did they get their people in it? 
um, what that should state really clearly what the inclusion and exclusion criteria were. It should state whether people dropped out of the study and why. Uh, it has to state any adverse effects. Um, you can't just skip over those. 14 people dropped out and then not say why or if anything happened to them. That's, that's not cool. Um, and is the, is the final sample representative of the broader population they're trying to talk about? Um, that needs to be true. Um, if it's not, then the, they need to describe really well in the paper why it's not. Um, and then, and then when you look at the methods, it's whether or not they're, whether or not they're rigorous, did they take any, any care to minimize bias? And did they state that, um, that should all be in the paper. If you have to guess, then don't read it. Um, and that's really helpful because I used to like torture myself trying to read these papers. Now I'm like, you are not clearly stating what you did. I don't have to read your paper which is kind of sad because I know how long and how much money goes into a lot of these studies. But, but seriously, if you're going to write it up, follow the rules and write it up. So does um, funding matter with respect to bias? It might. If a study is funded, they should clearly state where it came from. The authors have a place where they're supposed to state any bias. Uh, certainly if you, if let's say you were the lead author on a study about dry needling and you own a dry needling company that should make people have a little bit of wonder whether or not you are, are doing a, an, an unbiased assessment of the study. It doesn't mean they can't. It just means be, be very clear about that. Um, cause it could be a fantastic study. You don't want to toss it out just cause of that. Um, the analysis that's written up should be fair and appropriate and, and that should, that should be clear. Um, and then when you get to the results of the methods, the results have to match what, what they say. So I always so skipped got- the results section, anything that had numbers in it. I'm like, nap, skip. <laughs> um, the numbers are fantastic. And the graphs are fantastic. Cause there's a whole lot of ways people get clever. Like they do, um, especially like studies that are trying to measure the effect of an intervention. There should be data from before and data from after. Um, and maybe there's a control group and the, the chart should put that together so that you can see. But sometimes they'll put the like pre data in one chart and the post data for one effect on another chart, or they switch and they report pain, but their original question was about function. And you're like, wait, you didn't, you actually didn't even answer your own question and your graphs are not of the thing you're talking about. And, and are they trying to hide something? Uh, one hopes that it's not on purpose. Um, it, I think sometimes there are some clever manipulations of data and this sounds really grumpy. It's not, there are some really good papers, but, but none of us have time to wade through the crappy ones. And unfortunately there are crappy ones. Um, they're very self-serving ones. I don't like case studies at all. Um, case studies are supposed to be, um, unique, amazing events that make people go, wow, I didn't expect this. And we should probably look at this more carefully. 
it seems lately that case studies are like what everyone writes up so they can say they published something. Uh, and yes, that's cynical of me, but if you walk through any conference hall, there are so many case studies. Um, cause it's a way to get published and they're interesting, but they're not actually evidence. Uh, it's one person responding to one thing. Um, case series are a little more interesting, but, but really we need a well-designed study. A randomized control trial is great. It's hard to blind in physical therapy because we know what we're doing and our people know what we're doing, but there are ways around that. Um, qualitative studies are totally legit and, and those are hard to design and set up, but they're totally worth doing. So what's that? Uh, what's qualitative versus quantitative? Oof. Um, <laughs> Steve Camper did a beautiful talk on this at the class this weekend and he said it's hard. So I feel a little bit good about saying, um, I might get this wrong. And if there are any qualitative scientists that listen, I apologize. But, um, a quantit, uh, so a, a study that, that gives you objective data to measure like ordinal data, do you, you either, um, did or did not do your squat or you, you did however much weight or there's things that you can objectively measure, uh, Qualitative studies have more to do with people's uh, responses and what they're saying and what they're, they're feeling about what they're doing. And it requires that you collect the data on a, a very careful scale and measure it at specific times. And then you have to try and put that back into a population so that it's representative. And it's not easy. Um, there, are, there are rules to do it by, though, so you can do it. It's just hard. Um, but we have those and those might be good for physical therapy. Um, there's, there's, there's things that we can do, um, but mostly we have to read it. Um, so I'm looking at my notes cause I took notes so that I could talk and say, yep, that's it. So can, when can you go on, I was going to say, so results and interpretation you want, when you're reading the paper, you want to make sure they state the results clearly and that you can see the data. So if someone says our study showed that treatment X is more beneficial for pelvic pain than treatment Y, then there best be data there in a table somewhere where you can look at it and you can see the effect size and you can calculate if you want to the, um, the statistics for yourself so that you can check to make sure. But how do you know what statistic method they decided to choose was correct? Do we have to go into knowing all of that? Or can we at least put some trust that they chose the right? No, I think you need to know. I think that we, I think that it would be unfair to think that, that if I, I think that physical therapists should be able to, to know that if they're looking at a study that is trying to say that treatment X is better than treatment Y and someone did a retrospective chart review, that that might not actually answer the question. No, but what if you're looking at like the specific statistical methods that they used rather oh, than we, their methods? I think that we can look at, um, well, the p-values don't matter so much. That just tells you statistics, statistically significant, but that doesn't necessarily translate it's more interesting to look at effect size um, and the, the effect size can be done through some calculations looking at 
um, like the odds ratios and relative risk and, and, um, what's the number needed to treat in order to make a clinically significant difference. Then those statistics should be in the tables, but you can also calculate them if you're not, if they're not in there by the, um, the data that they would put in about, um, just standard data on means and the numbers of people in the study. So do, does the course that you hosted that's online go through the specific things of what is an odds ratio? It does. And it has the, the, the formula for it, which is just division and subtraction. Damn math. I can't get away from it. It's it's simple math. It's division and subtraction. That's all you need to know. A calculator on your phone will do it for you. Um, but yeah, you can, so you can do that. So you can look, but that's what our patients want to know too, is what's the risk, right? And we talk about, um, yeah, sitting is harmful for people. Well, what's the risk associated with that? And, and we need to know that we need to know that there is an increased risk of pelvic pain. If you ride your bike for a hundred miles a day, I'm making that statistic up. Um, but a wise person would ask, what is the relative risk? How, how many people would have to ride 100 miles before one person was bothered? Um, and there's a way to calculate that. That's very unsexy for marketing. It's more sexy for marketing to say, oh, my God, stay off your bike. It'll make your pelvic pain worse. And, um, but that might not be true. might be that movement is the thing that gets people better. So once you, is there anything else in the results section that people should keep their eye out for? Uh, they need to, just looking at how they wrote it out and, and making sure that it's, um, can answer the questions about whether or not you have enough information. Is the information useful and relevant? Um, how big is the effect size? And do you, probably most importantly for us is, are your patients similar to the group in the study? Um, because that does matter. Uh, and there are simple tools, the CASP, it's C-A-S-P tool is free and, and online and it walks you through that. And what I love the most about it is it asks two questions at the beginning. Um, I don't remember which ones. There's a lot of different tools for whichever kind of study you're reading. Um, but the first two questions are the ones that, that if you answer them, no, it says stop reading. Um, because they're like, don't, don't even bother. And, and the first one is usually, is this an answerable question? Are you able to tell what they're trying to do in the study? Um, it's like, if they, if they don't do that, then don't bother. And that's kind of freeing. Cause I thought I had to torture my way through all of the studies. I guess it's not a good idea to like, give us an example of one that wasn't done well. <laughs> well, no, in, and in fairness, I know how hard it is. I know how hard it is to ask a good question. Um, really crazy hard. Uh, I know how hard it is to ask an answerable question and then to gather, well, to get funding for it and then to gather enough people to make it a solid effect size to power it well enough. And then to write it up really well and to get it published. So there's a lot of barriers to doing really good research, and it takes a lot of time. So with all due respect for the people that write it up, 
I, I don't want this to sound like, like people are out there purposely misleading, but I will say there are some people who write up papers that are purposely misleading and that's just bad form and we should be able to recognize it and that the journals frankly shouldn't publish them, but, but there's that too. So we can't skip the results section, even though they talk about it in the discussion section. They may not be honest. All right. And then once, so the discussion's just kind of putting everything together and explaining the results. Uh-huh. And then there's the conclusion, which sometimes doesn't exactly discuss or doesn't honestly correlate to what they just found. Some of the conclusions sometimes. are great. Sometimes the conclusions are my favorite parts in where they'll be like, oh, you know, well, we did this. Didn't quite turn out the way we wanted it to. Um wasn't powered terribly strongly. We messed that up. We do it better this way than next time. But here's what we think might be helpful in practice. And here's what we think you can stand on and move forward. And if that's really all we're looking for is for a paper to give you one little step forward or to clarify the question a little bit. There isn't going to be an answer to everything. Um, but there can be little moves forward. And each one that comes out can help us a little bit with that. And, and I think that there's huge value in that. Um, some of them are just downright funny where they're like, so yeah, this didn't work out. (laughs) We're going to do it again. Um, the ones that are really irritating are when they, they say, um, when the data they present is that, that it's not helpful and it was fairly statistically significant and the effect size was micro or negative on the opposite side, across the line of, of neutral, which is bad. Um, the, and then they say, so you should use this in practice. You're like, really? Because nothing in your paper supports that statement at all. Um, so those are kind of funny and you just laugh. Um, I know it's hard. Research is hard. Reading it is, is sometimes tedious. Some people write really well. Some people don't. Um, but it's all really helpful if you're going to be an evidence-based practitioner. You need to read the evidence. But again, that goes back to we have to have access to the whole paper. Hmm. And so there in the in, in the recent couple of years, I don't actually know how long, there's been publishing companies that are not legit. Oh, so these open, it. not even just open access. Like I remember just tweeting a list that I had found on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, and there was there was hundreds of predatory journals. Yeah, yes. you have to what, do, so what is that? A predatory journal. Uh, Neil and Steve both said that they get emails uh, saying, "Dear fancy researcher, we would love you to publish in our very wonderful journal." on a topic that they have nothing to do with. Um, they, they make money by getting people to subscribe or pay for the journal. Um, that's not just, just because it's in print doesn't mean it's good. And that's the other reason that we need to really be good consumers of the evidence. Um, and there are predatory journals that go after authors to get them to pay to have their stuff published. So maybe if they couldn't get it published in something, they're like, ooh, I have this avenue I can use. Right. And the, But it's tricky because some things that used to be pred- considered predatory have now been around long enough 
and have reviews and peer reviews that are legit and they're starting to, 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 to turn around. Um, can you name names for that no, one at I, least? I can't, I can't, unfortunately. Okay. Um, the, there's a, I'll try and find it for you so you can put it in the show notes, but there is a site that used to be dedicated to identifying the predatory journals, but they, they're, it's shifty and they're, and they come and go. Um, but pretty much if, if there isn't, if you're the one there, they won't be indexed in PubMed. So that's the first it's things that are indexed in PubMed are better. Pedro has a peer review system as well. So that's a good source. Um, at the very least use Google scholar instead of Google. Uh, but, but look and see if it's a legit journal and a legit journal will have a review board and, and will have a peer review process. And you can always, if you're questionable, pretend you want to submit something to it and see what the submission process is. If you have to pay to get your stuff published, that's not normal. Um, so that's a good warning sign. Do you know of any open access ones that are legit? Uh, PL- PLOS one and PLOS. All right, I saw that recently, and I went, "Ooh, is that okay?" Yeah, uh, those are those, those those are two of the, as far as I know, the uh, most longstanding open access journals. Um, they have reviewers, but I don't know how robust the review process is. Um, It's hard, I mean, because people like to get paid. So journals like um, like the ones that are in all the controversies with the universities, uh, they um, the publishing companies want to pay their staff and they want to, to make money, and uh, the researchers aren't the ones that get the money for this. So... So it's a weird industry. Again, I'm I'm the daughter of a publisher, so I'm I'm conflicted in my opinions. Well, so do you have any summaries with respect to reading research and evidence? Do it. Or anything else to add? Read it. Um, find. I think that that Eric Mira wrote a blog post once that that I think is one of the most profound on reading the evidence. And what he said was. Essentially, sorry, Eric, you, he's not listening anyway. Um, the, Maybe the, he should. Pick four, <laughs> pick four journals that you want to read that are relevant to your professional direction uh, and put alerts on your email system so that you know when they're published and read the monthly edition. So that's one journal a week. And just read it. Um, that's it. You got to you got to dive in there, and you got to read it. Uh, you do need to read the entire article. You can't, um, or unless it's not a poorly defined question, and if they look like they're being dodgy with how they report their data, um, or if they're not reporting their data, and if it's a systematic review that doesn't say how they gathered their stuff, just stop reading because that's most likely a waste of your time. So when you say read one a week, you mean read it critically one a week, not just read. are going to get through this thing. Nope, read one critically a week. But that could be a very quick read. 
there were some we went through on this weekend course where where Kelly, my PT student, who just passed her boards today, yay! Yay, Kelly! The um, she'll already be working by the time this comes out. Um, the she was she was done. She was like we were doing the 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 group work on this paper, a systematic review, and we're like torturing ourselves trying to reason why we should keep reading it. And she was sitting over the other side of the room, just going, "Nope, spin it. <laughs> Stupid. It's a poorly defined question. They don't do this." There's no reason to continue. <laughs> like, she was right. She was just quicker at, at deciding not to. And the rest of us were trying to, to find a way to make it make sense. Well, I hope that that's what my supervisors are for, is to not let me start a research project with a very poor question <laughs> or a non-answerable question. Well, you can look. So here's what I would say. If I was... If I was going to write a paper, I would go to the CASP, it's C-A-S-P, um, you can just Google that, and it's a UK site, and go to the CASP tool for the type of paper you're writing, and just make sure that you hit all those points. Um, or look at the Cochrane Review of what they decide is a is a decent paper, and make sure that your paper hits those points. Uh, don't try and hide things. No. And so I'm really looking forward now to doing the online course. So if people listen to this podcast and they still have questions, that would probably be, even if it's pelvic health population or fitness, that course is perfect for everyone. And it'll be there for as long as the internet exists. And both Neil and Steve um, said that they will be on the closed Facebook group that's associated with it. So if people have questions, they can ask. So if they if they purchase any of the days, they then get the closed Facebook group? Uh-huh. Perfect. Oh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge. You know, this was the fifth or sixth podcast episode, I think, with you. We've covered – it's great because you've covered pelvic pain. You've covered men's health. You've covered transgender health. Um, and now evidence. And I'm sure something else at some point. So, again, you know, it's – in part your podcast oh i'm happy i'm glad I'm glad and i think it's hilarious we are we are enduring the same temperature but you're in a hat and i'm hot it's a toque not a hat <laughs> and my hair was wet and it was cold so even though it's 23 now in the sun it's winter and it's cold and i'm hiding my bad hair that's all right mine's up in a ponytail so that you can't see me there you go. Oh, well, thank you so much for coming on. No problem. I'll come back anytime you want. <laughs>